Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. the throat. Part 1. Our once great world is being lowered into a pit of hellfire, an evangelical preacher was saying on the radio. Mitra rolled her eyes and skipped past it. She toggled across a few other frequencies before settling on a Fremont hip-hop station that was playing a tribe called Quest. The music was a welcome reprieve from the endless stream of frustrations she'd faced that morning. First, the truck's fuel pump had seized up, making her 20 minutes late for her first delivery. Then, with a twist of the knife, her lender had called to say that her request for a forbearance had been denied. There's still steps you can take the lending officer had said tentatively. You still have the right to appeal the foreclosure. But Mitra had already hung up. She was too angry to think about appealing anything. Appealing felt too much like begging, and she didn't beg for anything. But then, in the midst of that aggravation, she had received a phone call, a call that would ultimately change everything. The man on the line offered well above her normal rate to pick up a crate from Seattle-Tacoma International and deliver it to a residence in Laurelhurst that afternoon. The money would go a long way, she knew. It wouldn't fix her predicament entirely, but it would certainly help. Typically, she delivered things like construction equipment and building materials to industrial lots and open projects along the highway. But ever since Washington Barrier had been forced into cutbacks, as they put it, i.e. her boss had hired his dirtbag nephew and given him half her roots, she'd taken on whatever extra deliveries she could get. She owned the truck outright, thank God, so she could take on as much extra work as she wanted, as long as she kept the old Freightliner maintained. It had a 28-foot stake bed that had seen better days, and the odometer was getting close to the 200,000-mile mark but it still ran as smooth as ever. It was her father's livelihood, that truck. He'd used it to make his living right up until the end. And even though their relationship had been, well, strained is a nice way to put it, he'd left the truck to her when he died of cancer nine months earlier. Mitra was astonished when she found out. She hadn't asked her father for anything while he was alive, and she certainly didn't expect him to include her in his will. But he did. He left her everything that he had. Which, in all honesty, wasn't very much. He never held on to money. He had a habit of drinking it all away as soon as he got it. But he gave her the one thing that he owned outright. His truck. If she hadn't been in such a desperate financial situation, she might not have accepted. But at the time, she was already struggling to make the mortgage payment so she was more willing than usual to accept an act of charity. However, she couldn't allow herself to simply sell the truck and put the proceeds towards her mortgage payment, a decision she would later regret, though she never admitted it to anyone. Instead, she made the impulsive and unexpected decision to use the truck as a source of income. Her career, if it could even be called one, hadn't taken her very far by that point. She'd spent most of her adult life working as a teller at a local credit union. She'd quietly hoped her base-level position would lead her somewhere. But it never did. All that job ever did was introduce her to Gary. Gary walked into her branch and opened an account one day, and then he came back the next day and asked for her number. The first two weeks they spent together were full of charm and excitement but the two years that ensued consisted mostly of misery and anger. When they divorced the previous year, 
she'd bought out his share of the mortgage on their house. It was only after he was gone that she finally admitted to herself that she couldn't afford to keep the place. So, two and a half months later, when she got news of her father's will, she decided it was high time for a career change. She walked out of Northern Seattle Credit Union for the last time and enrolled in commercial driving classes. Soon, she was making a decent wage doing deliveries for a construction company called Washington Barrier. But all it took to ruin that gig was a bit of nepotism. So she'd been taking on other work. Still, she didn't post flyers or run advertisements for her delivery service. Most of her jobs came through word of mouth. So when the call came in that morning to pick up the crate from the airport and deliver it to a private residence, it was certainly peculiar. She wondered briefly where this customer had heard of her why they had selected her for the job instead of a more well-known or reputable freight service. But she didn't devote too much time to the quandary. All she needed to know was that they were paying, and they were certainly paying. When it was all said and done, she'd pocket more than $1,000 for a job that shouldn't have earned her more than 500 bucks. What if they were shipping something illegal, she wondered, something like contraband or drugs? That could explain why they'd picked her with no prior contact. She'd be the perfect fall person if things went wrong. A patsy, totally oblivious to the extent of whatever smuggling operation they had going on. Mitra's knuckles were white as she gripped the wheel, steering her truck towards the airport's freight entrance. But wait, she thought. It didn't make any sense. Why would somebody ship 4,000 pounds of drugs through Seattle International Airport? It was preposterous, wasn't it? When Mitra pulled into her designated receiving bay, she watched skeptically in her rearview mirror as a forklift pulled around the corner of the terminal with a large wooden crate on its forks. It was roughly five feet tall and a good eight feet long. There was nothing written on the box to indicate what was inside, and as she watched it approach, Mitra felt a pang of anxiety rise up through her chest. The forklift driver jumped down and approached the side of her cab. Mitra wound down her window and signed to accept the shipment. Without a word, the driver returned to his forklift and began loading the freight onto Mitra's truck. She looked in her rearview mirror at the bulky wooden crate, its panels secured in place with what seemed like an excessive number of nails. What could be in there, she wondered. When the load was secured, Mitra ran her safety check before pulling out of the bay. Before she left the airport, she stopped for a moment and glanced at an Alaskan Airlines plane that was ascending into the gray blanket of clouds above. She wondered what it was like in Alaska. She imagined herself there. She imagined herself a new person, in a new place. She imagined herself free from her worries about money and her mortgage. She imagined herself free from the resentment she carried around for Gary. Gary, she thought and laughed. How dumb could she have been to get married to a man named Gary? She laughed again. The laughter was deep and throaty. It was the heartiest laugh she'd had in a long time. Years, maybe. It felt like a kind of surrender had come over her. She felt light as a feather, like she had finally managed to let it all go. Everything outside her immediate surroundings just faded away, and as she accelerated, merging onto the I-5 North, she was imbued with a miraculous sense of contentment. Her fears and worries, frustrations and anger, it all faded away. What's going on, she wondered, stifling her laughter for a moment. Just five minutes earlier, she'd been high-strung, full of agitation and anxiety. Was it the money? The promise of a bonus payoff that had her so excited? No, it was something more than that. Something that felt almost divine had come over her. She was in a state of euphoria. Could the shipment have been drugs after all? What if she had gotten a contact high? Something could have been on the shipping slip she had signed. It was possible, but what she was experiencing didn't feel like a narcotic or a hallucinogen. It just felt like pure acceptance and understanding. She exited onto SR-520 before taking the bridge over the Montlake Cut.
Her eyes wandered to Union Bay, beset with placid ripples that lapped at the opposing shore. Her mind was clear and perceptive, her thoughts cogent. She was aware of a part of herself that was worried about what was in the back of her truck, worried that it was something illegal, that it would get her arrested. But it was the same part of her mind where all her other worries were located, and they were all so quiet in there that she hardly paid them any mind. As she drove through the university neighborhood, she lost the signal of the radio station she was listening to. She popped in an old CD that was laying on the dash. It was R.E.M.'s Monster. Mitra turned it up. She felt like she had found peace. Real peace. It was a quarter to four when she arrived at the address, or at least when she arrived at the driveway. The house was buried in the woods at the end of a long, unpaved driveway that snaked through the trees. It took her a few minutes before the clearing opened up enough for her to even see the residence, which, she realized, was a lot more than a house. It was something like a compound. There were four or five buildings, all comprised of smooth concrete surfaces and with very few windows. The largest building was at the center of the compound, it was dome-shaped with a tall, ominous roof. To Mitra, it looked more like a power plant than a residence. But it wouldn't be the first time that she was surprised by the ambivalence of contemporary architecture. She'd seen some of the ridiculous modern art houses that were owned by the local tech millionaires. It's not my thing, so let it go, she said, singing along with Michael Stipe. As she approached... She saw two men standing on a large cement pad outside the circular building. Both of them wore what looked like medical scrubs. When she got close, one of them began waving her over, while the other hopped on a nearby forklift and started it. When the man on the ground gave her a thumbs up, Mitra came to a stop. He walked around the side of her truck and removed the gates from the bed, allowing the forklift to access the crate. He looked up at the other man in the forklift. Quickly, he said. We only have a few minutes. Mitra was surprised that she could make out the words so clearly. Her windows were shut and the truck's diesel engine was still idling. Without missing a beat, the man approached her passenger window and pulled himself up to the second step so he could see her at eye level. When he looked at her, it was the only time since arriving there that she felt uneasy. His eyes were gray and cold, all business no personality. Mitra wound down her window and handed him the shipping slip. He signed for it and gave her a check. Mitra looked down at the $1,200 check. She still didn't understand why they'd paid her so much. And now she was more curious than ever about what was inside the crate that they were lifting off the bed of her truck. She thought about asking the man what was inside, or maybe even just telling him with a smile that if they ever need anything else hauled, to make sure they give her a call. But when she looked up at the passenger window, he was already gone. Part 2 When Borden had backed away from the truck, Corliss put the side gates back on and latched them in place. He hurried back around to the front of the forklift so he could help guide Borden through the freight entrance and into the large circular building. Inside, the smooth concrete floor had been painted with a series of red concentric circles. The first, roughly 70 feet wide, ran close to the floor's perimeter. The second circle was maybe half as big. Then, at the exact center of the room, a final circle was painted maybe 10 feet wide. In its center was an elevated platform with a black X on it. It looked like a giant dartboard or a helicopter landing pad. Just as they'd been instructed, Corliss guided Borden to the X at the center of the room. There, they set down the crate, backed out the forklift, and promptly left the large dome-shaped building, closing the freight door as they left. When they were hired for the job that morning, Corliss and Borden were told that they would have between four and six minutes to complete the task. Neither of them had asked what would happen if they went over, though the question had crossed Corliss's mind. They had been hired to accept shipment of rare earth materials, as it had been stated to them. But Corliss didn't understand what could possibly be so urgent about rare earth materials. 
And why did they need to be placed in the center of a circular room? When they got outside and deadbolted the door, they saw the man they'd talked to that morning, emerging from one of the other buildings on the property. He was still wearing his white lab coat and had an envelope in his hand. When he got to within a few feet of them, he held up his wrist and checked his watch. Just over two minutes, he said. Well done, gentlemen. He held out the envelope and Corliss accepted it. Inside were ten hundred dollar bills. You guys can split that however you like, he said. That's it? Corliss asked. I mean, the money's great, it's just... You're giving us all this for five minutes of work? The man smiled. I'm giving you this because you did the work in five minutes. Under five minutes, in fact. Just like I asked. Just remember to change back into your regular clothes and toss your uniforms in the waste bin before you leave. Now that they were standing there, outside the building, and Corliss had the money in his hand, he suddenly felt a hint of fear. Had he and Borden just exposed themselves to something toxic? What if there was something radioactive in that crate? Corliss looked up at the towering dome. The structure seemed formidable, conciliatory, standing there in the woods below a dense canopy of clouds. I just want to make sure you know Borden and I handled that crate in good faith, he said to the man, still peering up at the building. What you've got in there isn't some kind of OSHA violation, is it? The man smiled awkwardly. Not at all, he said. It's just... Suddenly, Borden, who had been quiet through the whole exchange, decided to speak up. How come you never came anywhere near that crate, he asked. And why didn't you ever tell us your name? The man forced another awkward smile. Okay, he said. When I hired you this morning, there were only a few stipulations. That you would do the work quickly and that you wouldn't ask questions. Now, I have a lot going on here, and I'm sorry, but the truth is I'm not concerned about the scrutiny of shipping workers. So, if you'll get inside and get changed, don't forget to leave your scrubs and your gloves in the waste bin. I'll have a car pull around to give you a ride home. The men abided, albeit begrudgingly, but later, as the driver was taking he and his friend back into town... Corliss wondered why he had only become concerned about the contents of the crate after he'd already dealt with it. In the moment, as odd as the task had been, he hadn't questioned it at all. Come to think of it, he'd felt rather strange in the moment. An odd sensation had come over him when he was near that crate, though he couldn't say exactly why. Part 3 by the time she put away her ratchet straps, hopped back in her cab, and drove back down the long, winding driveway, Mitra's euphoria had faded. Of course, she was happy to have made a lot of money that day, but the raw, unfiltered joy she had felt on the drive over was gone. Slowly, the realities of her life crept back in, and by the time she got home twenty minutes later, she was already back to worrying about all the trivial things she usually worried about. But she didn't just let the events of that day go. She held on to them, pondered them. She wondered what was inside that crate, and she wondered what went on at that compound in Laurelhurst. Most of all, though, she wondered why she had that feeling for the whole length of the trip. She was ecstatic but clear-headed. It was like nothing she'd ever experienced. She felt like she had been on the verge of enlightenment. It had started the moment the crate was loaded onto the back of her truck, and it had ended, just as abruptly, when she dropped it off. Mitra went into her kitchen to brew a cup of tea. She looked out the foggy kitchen window at the gloomy dusk. A rain was beginning to fall, and it wasn't supposed to stop for the next few days. She put the kettle on and got a tea bag out of the cupboard, dropping it in a mug that read Washington State Birdwatching Society. It was her father's mug, though she didn't know where he'd gotten it. He wasn't particularly interested in birds, except for a wild turkey, of course. When the water came to a boil, Mitra poured it into the mug. She watched the tea steep, watched the essence of the leaves leak out of the tea bag, turning the water a cloudy peach color. Her reflection danced on the liquid surface, and as she looked at it, she felt the steam waft up at her cheeks. A single word seemed to hang in her mind. 
It wasn't a word she used or thought of often, but ever since she'd gotten home, she couldn't get it out of her head. The word that she was thinking about was proximity. She recalled that when the client had called her that morning, he had asked her how long her truck was. She had told him it was 28 feet. The man on the phone had checked with someone, asking if 28 feet was long enough. Nothing about the exchange was out of the ordinary. Clients would often ask about the size of her truck when inquiring about deliveries. But when she thought about it now, it seemed peculiar. The crate had been no more than eight feet long. The load could have been carried by a truck half the size of hers. Why had the man asked his superiors if a 28-foot truck was long enough? If anything, he should have been asking if it was too long. The answer insisted a voice in Mitra's head, was that these people weren't concerned about the payload of her truck. They didn't care how much freight it could haul. They were concerned about proximity. They knew that whoever they hired to transport that crate would be affected by what was inside. It seemed they wanted to limit the driver's exposure, so they hired someone with a long truck bed, a bed long enough that they could set it far back from the cab, where its effect would be less profound. But Mitra had still been close enough to feel it. She could sense whatever it was in that crate. It was like it had been communicating with her, leaking out of the crate and filtering into her mind, changing her, making her feel free, clear-headed, calm. But what was it really doing to her? Why did it make her feel that way? Her eyes returned to the teacup, the soluble compounds in the tea leaves dissolving and permeating the water, like the many questions now swarming around in her mind. Part 4 It's here, Clive said. Lenowski stood. Her heart was pounding. But Clive put a hand on her shoulder. Wait, he said still peering through the blinds at the diesel truck coming up the driveway. We don't want to come in contact with it until it's contained. That way we can more precisely measure its effects. Lenowski obeyed, but she had a feeling scientific integrity wasn't really what Clive was after. What he really wanted, she thought, was to be the first one to see it. Ever since the project had started, Clive had been grasping for control of it. If it had been up to him, he probably would have been the only scientist on the team. But thankfully, Hapner had seen fit to diversify their approach. Clive was a geologist, specializing in chemical compounds and rare earth minerals. But if the stories about what was in that crate were true, then it couldn't simply be studied like a rock or a mineral. It would have to be approached with the acknowledgement of the object's apparent intelligence. Which was why Lenowski, a biologist, had also been added to the team. She had made her point heard that the team shouldn't be limited to two scientists either. That in order to fully understand the object, they would need a larger team of assorted experts. But because of matters of secrecy, Hapner insisted that they involve as few people as possible. Clive agreed with him, unsurprisingly for how adamant he was about maintaining control of the project. She sat and watched him, peering out the window at the hired workers as they unloaded the crate. If she had to describe him in one word, she would have gone with artificial. His brown hair was combed over and it shined with such a brilliant sheen it looked like it could have been made out of plastic. He wore a pristine white lab coat, a cleaner white than any lab coat she'd ever owned. There wasn't a single stain on it, and it made her wonder if he'd ever actually done any lab work in it. Sticking down beneath the coat were some satin dress pants and a pair of very expensive-looking Italian leather shoes. To Lenowski, he looked more like an entrepreneur in a white trench coat than a scientist. But, alas, she reminded herself, she wasn't there to criticize or complain. She was there to participate in a scientific breakthrough. And in that regard, she was quite lucky. Most of her colleagues would have killed to be in the position she was in. About to commence pioneering research on something utterly unknown? It was the kind of opportunity most scientists dream about, 
Lenowski turned and looked at Happner. She still didn't really know why the old man had picked her, or why he'd picked Clive for that matter. Well, it was at least partially because they were both reputable scientists that had published extensively in their respective fields. But why them specifically? Why not any of the other hundreds of biologists or geologists that live in Seattle? She'd never mustered up the courage to ask, because if life in STEM had taught her anything, it was that opportunities were rare, and on the occasion that one came her way, she shouldn't ask questions that make people question her competence. Clive checked his watch, stepping back from the window. They should be done any second now, he said. I'll go out there and pay them, arrange for them to be taken back to town. Happner nodded, and Clive went outside. Lenowski could hear the diesel truck pulling away and weaving through the woods. She was tense. She considered, perhaps for the first time, whether there might be something dangerous in that crate. What if the uncharted territory she was about to march into was uncharted for a reason? What if the people who had tried to chart that territory before had seen an untimely end? No, that was silly. If what was in that crate was dangerous, if it posed some kind of threat to them, she would have heard of it. But up until a few days before, she had never even known it existed. Which, if she was honest with herself, was more than a little odd. How could something like this exist and not be known about? She looked at Happner. The old man was slumped in his wheelchair, eyeing her. What did he want in all this, she wondered. And then, as if he knew she was thinking about him, the old man sat up suddenly. Well, he said, I suppose it's time. She nodded and they went outside. The men Happner had hired to accept the shipment had just left, and Clive was standing outside Containment 1, the large domed building at the center of the property. Scattered around Containment 1 were the living quarters, the imaging lab, the chemistry lab, and a few other buildings for storing and staging equipment. As Lenowski and Happner approached, Clive was suiting up into a full-body hazmat suit. I didn't see the other men wearing those, Lenowski said. I know, Clive said dismissively. I didn't want to attract unwanted attention or concern to the project. You ask someone to wear a hazmat suit and they'll start asking questions. Why do I have to wear this? What's in the crate? You know, the type of questions we can't afford to answer. We can't afford to expose people to dangerous and unknown things either, Lenowski said. Oh, come on, Clive said. I had them wear scrubs. You can test them later for radiation and whatever else. Besides, the suit is just a precaution. We don't have any evidence that exposure causes any sort of harm. We don't have any evidence of anything, Lenowski shot back. Not yet, at least. Nobody knows what that thing in there does. All right, Happner said bringing his wheelchair to a stop between them. We have important work to do, and I didn't hire you two to stand out here arguing. But for the record, I'm with Lenowski on this one. Everybody wears a suit from now on. Clive nodded discreetly but said nothing, while Lenowski set about preparing to enter the containment. As the three of them had previously discussed, Hapner wouldn't accompany them on their initial experiments. Because of his health condition the details of which he'd never fully divulged to the two scientists. He wanted to wait for their preliminary findings before risking exposure. That said, he clearly meant to keep a close eye on their progress. With cameras and microphones rigged to the interior of Containment 1, he would watch and listen from his office in one of the adjacent buildings. Lenowski was more anxious than excited. She was breathing so hard it was fogging up her goggles but Clive played his cards close to his chest. He breathed slowly and deliberately as he pushed the door open, and then the two of them walked inside. The interior of the containment reminded Lenowski of a basketball stadium, though it wasn't as big, and it was striking how empty the room looked to her. Monitoring equipment was scattered around the perimeter of the room, but most of the floor lay empty. The crate sat on an elevated platform in the center of the room, illuminated by a massive spotlight mounted on the ceiling. 
Three concentric red circles had been painted on the floor at varying distances from the center of the room. They would be used to track the effects of the object at various levels of exposure. The first circle, which was only a few feet away from where they stood, had a radius of 35 feet. The effects of the object were thought to begin at about 30 feet away, so the first circle would be used more or less to set a baseline. The second circle had a radius of 20 feet. There, the effects should be moderate to consistent. And finally, the innermost circle, which had a radius of 10 feet. Within this circle, the object's most powerful effects would be felt. Hapner hadn't told them much about the object, just enough to make them curious, really. But he did say that he'd been searching for it for 11 years, and that in that time... Not a single person had sustained close enough proximity to the object to touch it. Nobody had even gotten close enough to open its crate. Allegedly, the crate it was delivered in was the same crate it was sealed inside after its discovery. And since that time, it was said to have passed through the hands of many wealthy collectors and enthusiasts, most of whom were intent on researching the object's mysterious effects. But none of these studies were successful. Inevitably, they all ended with the object disappearing, only to reappear somewhere else a few years later. What few people had personal interactions with the object through the years were difficult to track down, and no real conclusive history of the object could be found. Its origin, its physical appearance, its chemical makeup, and just about everything else about it was still shrouded in mystery. There was a lot of work to be done, Lenowski knew, and she was eager to get to it, but perhaps not as eager as Clive. She watched as he walked clear over the first line and stood no more than twenty feet from the crate. His arms spread wide, his face tilted up as if to accept some kind of sacrament. What are you doing? she asked. Why did we bother to set up a protocol if you were just going to break it the second we got in here? but Clive ignored her. The plan was sustained contact at 35 feet. Then, after 24 hours, Clive! She shouted as he took another step towards the crate. He stood with his toes on the 20-foot line, still holding his arms up in the air. And was he smiling now? Lenowski looked up at one of the cameras on the wall. When she looked back at Clive, he had fallen to his knees. Head thrown back, he was laughing hysterically. It's talking to me, he was saying. Can you hear it? You're being reckless, Lenowski tried to say, but the words didn't come out right. It became hard for her to speak, hard for her to think, hard for her to tell even how much time had passed in Containment 1, or what exactly she had done since entering. All she could remember was standing there, yelling at Clive. But she had the distinct feeling that things had happened, or could have happened, in that time. She couldn't recall moving, but now she found herself on the other side of the room. She was sitting on the floor, near the 20-foot line. And Clive? Well, Clive was sitting next to her. His long legs crossed neatly, his immaculate lab coat folded in his lap. But no couldn't be. Because Clive was before her. He was leaning over the crate with a crowbar, prying open the lid. She turned back to the Clive sitting next to her. He was still there. She didn't understand. It didn't feel like there were two Clives as much as it just felt like time and space were crumbling in on themselves. But then it changed again. Because now it wasn't the Clive across the room that held the crowbar. It was the Clive sitting next to her. And he wasn't sitting anymore. He was standing. Standing over her. And was he saying something? It sounded like he was talking. But no, it wasn't just him. There was someone else talking too. A voice that sounded like it was coming from everywhere, all at once. Stop, the voice was saying. Please, I'm a mother. 
I have children. It was odd, she thought, how much it sounded like her own voice. Part 5 A full two days after she dropped it off, Mitra was still fixated on the mysterious crate. She couldn't explain why or how, but she knew that the contents of that box had affected her in some way. She tried searching online for the address she dropped it off at, hoping it was associated with a research company or some other entity that she could use to figure out what went on there. But her search returned no results. It was then, though, that she had an idea. An idea so simple she wondered why she hadn't thought of it before. She raced downstairs and retrieved the check that they had paid her with when she dropped the crate off. It was issued by someone named Sylvian Hapner. She went back to her computer and looked the name up. Apparently, he was a wealthy aristocrat whose family had ties to the intelligence and aerospace communities. He seemed to be a rather quiet and solitary individual, but some details about his personal life had made their way into the press. Hapner was a paraplegic, having lost the use of his legs in a car accident. Apparently, since his retirement a few decades before, he'd been very interested in the search for extraterrestrial life. None of this information was easy for Mitra to dig up, but what she found next took the most digging of all. After hours of searching through useless tabloid articles and ridiculous web forums, Mitra uncovered a thread purported to have been posted by someone close to Hapner. The thread, which had appeared in a now-defunct discussion board, explained Hapner's search for something referred to as the Trident, or, in some circles, simply referred to as the Object. According to the source, the Trident was a large crystalline formation. It had a three-pointed tip, and was said to be composed of intricate fractal patterns. It was alleged to have been found inside an impact crater somewhere in Siberia. The poster went on to say that the people who came in contact with the trident reported various physical and psychological effects. As Mitra read the words, her breath ceased. Any doubt she had as to whether she was reading about the thing she'd transported was now gone. With frightened urgency, she read on. Apparently, some people contended that because of its strange symmetrical composition, the trident had been created by some kind of intelligent force. Others argued that the trident was perhaps itself a living thing. Though that, of course, was all conjecture, as nobody had ever conclusively proven the object's existence. Or had they, Meacher thought shutting her laptop. She knew, even before she got out of her chair, what she was about to do. And she knew that it was reckless, perhaps even dangerous. But there was also a deep, pressing need in her. A need to understand what she'd experienced. So she left. She walked outside, got in the cab of her freightliner, and drove back up to Laurelhurst. It was a cold and misty night that Mitra went out into. Neon signs for rundown motels glowed through the fog, and Man in the Box by Alice in Chains played on the radio. The further north Mitra drove, the darker the atmosphere became. The ambient glow of the city lights was replaced by the dark silhouettes of pines and cedars that loomed along the roadside. At just after 11 p.m., Mitra arrived at the property. It was only then that she realized she didn't have a plan. What was she going to do, knock on the front door in the middle of the night and start asking questions? No, that seemed stupid. She would have to be covert. Knowing that the Freightliner's loud diesel engine would give her away, she parked at the end of the long driveway and set off on foot. But before she left the truck behind, she grabbed one of her forged steel tire irons out of the truck's storage compartment. Why this matter was so urgent, and why she needed to bring a weapon, were questions that she couldn't answer with words. It was just something that she felt, like a lurking sensation 
a question left perilously unanswered. Mitra's boots left deep prints in the mud. Every time she took a step, they made a subtle sucking sound. She felt the long arms of ferns brushing against her legs, but she couldn't see much in the darkness. In the distance, she heard an owl call out, and she imagined it, perched in a tree, watching her indifferently. As she walked, she began to see the glow of the compound's lights through the trees. She was close, she knew. But as she moved, still keeping a low profile, something caught her eye. It was circular, like a hoop tilted up on its side. And it seemed to shine, reflecting the light of the nearby property. Another few steps and she heard something move in the bushes a few feet away. Her grip tightened around the tire iron, and she took another step, eyes darting around the forest. She looked at the shining hoop a dozen or so yards away. More movement, this time only a few feet in front of her. She reared back the tire iron, ready to swing. And then she realized what was before her. The light on one of the nearby buildings cast just enough radiance for Mitra to see the injured old man lying on the ground before her. He had short gray hair that was streaked with mud, and his clothes were spotted with leaves and blood. His right arm was badly broken, with the hand mutilated and the fingers disfigured. He looked up at her pleadingly. Oh my god! Mitra said when she realized the man she was looking at was Sylvian Hapner. She lifted her eyes to the shining hoop she had seen. It was Hapner's wheelchair, toppled over at the edge of the forest. He looked like he'd been attacked, and apparently tried to flee, dragging himself one-handed through the forest after ditching his wheelchair. What the hell happened? Mitra asked him, but the man could only moan. She guessed that his jaw might be broken. She pulled out her phone and immediately called 911. She stayed by Hapner's side as she spoke with the operator. When the woman asked if there was anyone else with him on the property, Mitra relayed the question to the old man. He managed a weak nod, and a chill came over Mitra. With help on the way, she turned to Hapner, pulling out her flashlight. She flicked the light on and set it in Hapner's good hand. Help will be here soon, she said. Shine this in the air so they can see you when they get here. Mitra's eyes glanced up at the property. Who else is up there, she asked, but then realized he wouldn't be able to answer. Is anyone that's up there in danger, she tried. The old man looked to the side, his lip quivering momentarily. And then he nodded stiffly. Still gripping the tire iron, Mitra got to her feet. She kept it cocked over her shoulder as she approached the property, and soon she emerged from the forest, bathed in the light of the compound's halogen spotlights. Her creeping form cast a shadow in every direction, but Mitra kept her eyes fixed on the big circular building at the center of the property. She could see that the freight door was open, and that someone was inside. They appeared to stand with arms spread wide next to the large wooden crate, which was situated at the center of the room. Something seemed wrong about this person, though. Their proportions were off. They were too tall. It was only when Mitra finally arrived at the open bay door that she realized... This person was not, in fact, standing. They were mounted on a makeshift cross that had been erected next to the crate. The person that had been mounted on the cross was a woman. She had long, brown hair. There was a gash on her forehead, and it had left her with streaks of dried blood caked over her eyes. Her lab coat was torn and soiled, and she only had one shoe on a cheap sneaker that was stained with blood. Mitra couldn't tell if the woman on the cross was alive or dead, but she began sprinting regardless. 
When she got to within a few yards, she felt that familiar rush of euphoria. Though her adrenaline was pumping so hard by that point she could hardly notice. It was, though, at just that moment, when she noticed there was another person in the room. A man stood near the wall, watching her silently. He was tall, with short brown hair, dressed in a lab coat that was perfectly white, with the exception of a brownish-red streak slashed across the front. Mitra tightened her grip on the tire iron. She took another few steps towards the woman on the cross. She was surprised to see that the woman was breathing. Of course I didn't kill her, the man said. That would defeat the purpose. Now, though, he stood only a few paces away. How had he moved halfway across the room so fast? Mitra wondered. She hadn't heard him take so much as a step. And it was dead quiet in that room. You stay right the fuck where you are, Mitra told him, tipping the tire iron in his direction. His eyes were red and wide, his face sweaty and unshaven. What did you do to her? Mitra asked. The man smiled smugly. I gave her the opportunity nobody in this world has ever had. I helped her see. She's seen more than any of us will ever comprehend. The man's eyes drifted as he spoke. He seemed to be on the verge of falling apart, struggling just to stay on two feet. Mitra looked up at the woman, at the cracked splotches of blood that covered her face. She felt like she no longer understood humanity. Like she'd just woken up in some obscene reality. A place that was populated with creatures she could not comprehend. Suddenly, the room was filled with the wail of approaching sirens. And soon, Mitra could see strobes of blue light emerging from the woods. The man, apparently a geologist named Emerson Clive was taken into custody without much of a fight. And while Mitra didn't pay close attention to the proceedings of his trial, she would later take comfort in knowing that he'd spend the rest of his life behind bars. The woman, a biologist by the name of Ellen Lenowski, survived the incident but never regained her full mental faculties. Her recovery was slow and sporadic, and for the rest of her life she would struggle to effectively communicate often speaking in jumbles of loosely connected words that people struggled to understand. Sylvian Hapner would also survive after having been attacked while trying to stop Clive. With the extensive injuries to his right arm, though, he never regained use of the appendage. For her part, Mitra was extensively interrogated by the police. For the life of her, she couldn't explain to them what she was doing at that property in the middle of the night. All she could tell them was that she had a bad feeling. Eventually, though, she was cleared of all wrongdoing, and though journalists were harping on her repeatedly, offering to write her heroic and harrowing story, she declined all their requests. A week after the incident, Mitra called her bank and was astonished to learn that the remaining balance of her mortgage had been paid off by an anonymous donor. Sitting there in the cab of her truck, Phone pressed against her ear. She began to cry. It had been Hapner, she knew, and she supposed it was fair, considering she had saved his life. But it still took her some time to wrap her head around all of it. And while she had avoided discussing the topic of exactly what occurred that night for basically the rest of her life, she did maintain a silent theory. It was her personal belief that whatever was inside that crate gave people who came in contact with it the antithesis of what they desired. Based on what Mitra had come to understand while talking to the detectives, Clive had sought power and control in the operation. And in the end, he was powerless, confined to a prison cell. Lenowski appeared to have been looking only for knowledge and understanding, but the events left her with permanent mental scars. And while she didn't have any proof that Sylvian Hapner went into it hoping to regain the use of his legs, she suspected that that might be the case. As it happened, though, he only lost the use of his arm as well. 
Of course, it pained her to consider how this theory would apply to her own experience with the object. The effect it had on her was one of personal gratification and euphoria, suggesting that what Meacher wanted most in life was to punish herself. And was that not the truth? She wondered about it from time to time, but it didn't matter, because, of course, this was all just hearsay. The trident, or simply the object, as it was called, never officially existed. After arresting Clive and taking Lenowski to the hospital, units were dispatched to the Laurelhurst property to process the crime scene. Detectives were especially curious about the wooden crate that was displayed prominently in the center of that strangely configured structure. But when they opened the crate to see what was inside, they found that it was empty. Hey, uh, if you're still listening, I want to first say thank you. I really, really appreciate everybody that has checked out the show and listened and written to me. Um, I also want to let you know that I have a Patreon. If you sign up for a $3 donation, you get to hear every episode a few days early. And you also get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long. It's kind of a cosmic horror uh, slash thriller mystery. It follows a burned-out journalist that becomes obsessed with an unexplained missing persons case. You can hear the first 30 minutes of the audiobook on the episode titled Solace. And if you like it, definitely check it out. Subscribe. Uh, you can listen to the Patreon feed, obviously, on the Patreon mobile app, or you can listen on whatever podcast app you like. There's a private RSS feed that you can plug into whatever app you use. And uh, yeah, the book is broken up into sections, so it's a little easier to keep track of where you're at. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. There's also a link in the show notes of this episode and in the bio of the show that you can click on. So yeah, that's all from me. Um, if you enjoy the show, please leave a rating or a review. And... Yeah, thank you so much. I seriously appreciate you guys. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care. Dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.